0: I'm Abby Strauss and welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Nat Chidiac is a neurologist specializing in sleep disorders. Doctor Chidiac, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Doctor Strauss. Thanks for having me on the show. Let's begin with a simple but complex question. We all do it, we all feel it, but what is sleep? Why is it something that we cannot avoid?
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question that still kind of eludes all scientists as well as clinicians. I mean, we, we understand that without sleep, we certainly feel the effects of it of functioning during the day, as well as uh, recent data that looks at uh, health, the immune system, and how our body metabolizes sugar. So, you know, there's been links to lack of sleep with associated obesity as well, which is a big topic in the United States recently. So, the need for sleep is still kind of eludes us, We once again, we all know the significance when we don't get it, but but there are many of us and many Americans in the United States that suffer from sleep disorders and, and have it, and there's associated impairments related to uh, difficulty with sleep.
0: And I'd like to get to some of those, but it still is so odd that everybody does it, But and as you just said, we really don't know what it is.
1: Yes, it's, a, it's an innate, an innate uh, function of man. Uh, of all mammals to go through a cycle in a 24-hour period uh, to sleep, and, um, and man is uh, monophasic. We, we have one phase out of 24 hours where the brain kind of shuts down and allows us to go into subconsciousness, but yet it, the brain's still very active and producing uh, punitive little chemicals and hormones that allow us to, if you will, restore our body, restore our immune system, restore our energy. That allows us to now, the following day after six, seven, eight hours of rest, be able to function the subsequent day. So it isn't a passive time in a 24 hour period, but rather an active physiologic process that consciously we're not aware of our surroundings during that period of sleep.
0: I've always thought that it's interesting that the brain doesn't really sleep, it doesn't get a chance to rest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a, a good point that you make. Uh, actually, it's quite interesting that. Uh, um, we, we, scientifically, we look at uh, being awake as a cortical phenomenon, that is the outer surface of the brain, which is higher integrated neurons, the central nervous system cell that's very much active and functioning and cross-communicating and cross with other areas to produce this very complex task of living and functioning, interacting with our environment. But sleep, it's interesting, it's sleep is a very fundamental process, fetuses do it, and, and it's a, a fundamental process of life that does not take higher integrated function. You don't need to learn to sleep. The body does it in an innate, an innate nature of function of our body that, that it's it's necessary in order for us to function and survive.
0: Does the nature of sleep change as we get older?
1: Yes. as I think we all have great recollection of our children. Great mm-hmm. sleepers, they sleep a long time. And if, if, if we think back ourselves many years ago. We probably looked at looked at our sleep that we, we could sleep on a picket fence, so to speak. One of the aging processes that occur in sleep incidentally, the first process occurs probably around menopause for females and men around 50 to 60. We call it uh, male menopause. Is, it, we start noticing our sleep to be more interrupted, just more spontaneous. And, and physiologically, that can be related to a drop in uh, in certain depth of sleep, what we call stage three sleep or our slow-way sleep, which is our restorative part of sleep. It's one of the aging process of the brain. But it drops to uh, some degree, but not felt by all, with additional factors such as in menopause. Of course, you have night sweats, et cetera. Later in our 70s and 80s, that depth of sleep which is our restorative, meaning feeling refreshed upon the rise in the morning, pretty much starts dissipating in the 70s and 80s. Of course, there are, there are variation of the theme in that uh, I have seen patients in their 80s here at the sleep center that, that actually have that adequate slowly sleep. And those individuals have other complaints uh, and they typically do not describe problems with vitality and so on and so forth. So the aging process of sleep is uh, more of, not so much that we need less sleep as we get older, or a longer sleep as we get older, our sleep becomes less, if you will, consolidated, less deep sleep, which is now substituted with more an intermediate stage of sleep that can cause us to awaken at night and feel that we have more awakenings, more disruption, and then perhaps that relates to not feeling rested upon arising in the morning and then, and maybe even a tendency to want a nap in the afternoon.
0: So it's not a product necessarily of the number of hours of sleep. It's the product of the effectiveness of sleep. Can that's, we put it that way?
1: That, that's correct. It's called, uh, sleep continuity, the the ability to have continuity of sleep as well as the depth. That is the, the quality, not necessarily quantity, although it is vital and we all... Uh, have heard and seen things on on the uh, on the media today about our society's sleep deprived, and, and that's of course another issue altogether.
0: Well, we'll get to that in a few minutes because I think that's absolutely critical. A lot of people bant around the word insomnia, and I think it's used. In a lay manner, just to the impression that you can't fall asleep, but I think sleep specialists define it a little bit more broadly.
1: Sure, sure. Insomnia is by far the most common symptom that we see uh, patients in our center, and probably most all physicians probably are exposed to the insomnia complaint. Insomnia defines it's just difficulty with sleep. It could be Qualitative qualitatively really as difficulty getting to sleep, or staying asleep, or awaken and cannot get back to sleep. But at the same token, when you have those complaints. There must be some sort of, of of observation by the patient that during the day it affects him in somehow, some way, such as I'm tired as a result of not sleeping, I'm fatigued, I can't focus, uh, I am listless, I'm ill, uh, I feel sad or depressed. Uh, and so the definition of insomnia is, is a symptom and a syndrome nowadays defined as uh, disruptive sleep in either getting or staying asleep, which results in, in daytime consequences. And that's the true definition, of course, allocating enough time to do so because our hectic society you know we have a tendency to shorten how much we sleep so insomnia implies more disruptive sleep
0: what about the problems of going to sleep no i'm saying that incorrectly i apologize the disruption of sleep we once upon a time did not have light bulbs we did not have tv sets and it seems that we are staying up longer and sleeping fewer hours you seem to have address that issue a little bit already. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. No doubt that Thomas Edison, you know, definitely invented something that, that brought forth our, our wonderful society of, of, of uh, to the modern age of 24-7 society that we can work around the clock and so on and so forth. Yet our innate natural physiology and function of life is that we sleep, man sleeps once every 24 hours. With the advent of the invention of the light bulb and technology and so on and so forth, we're basically bombarded with exposed to a lot of lights everywhere. Yes, in the past, we do know that prior to electricity, we had a tendency to go to sleep earlier and man slept a little bit longer, probably an hour and a half more than what we're actually sleeping today. Now, does that mean that that as a result of bright light, uh, we need less sleep. Well, that's not necessarily so. And as, as, a, as a general rule, what bright light does is alter your internal clock to be set correctly to allow you to sleep appropriately.
0: So if and, you, Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: And, and, uh, and, and that is a very key point that all of us have when we are, if you will, confronted with computer and work or even just recreational things. We're exposed to a lot of light and that bright light, of course, suppresses the release of uh, this little chemical that cues our brain when to sleep.
0: That's melatonin.
1: That is correct, melatonin.
0: And so, is it possible to throw the cycle off by getting up at eleven or twelve o'clock at night and saying, "Hmm, let me go check my emails"?
1: Yes. You know, it's sleep is a process that's 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 scheduled and and almost out of your control to a certain degree. But of course, that schedule can be altered voluntarily, voluntarily by saying, uh, I need to do certain things, and I'm going to stay up later. But we have external factors that kind of add to that disruption of our internal clock that cues us to to sleep, and that is bright light. And once again, that bright light exposure, go to your email, open, the, uh, open your computer, and I don't know about you, but you know we do know that com- the, the computer screens are no longer six inches, and the computer screens are quite large nowadays. And you can actually measure how much light a computer screen exposes in lux. And a lot of this exposure in the evening, uh, what it what it naturally does is bright light suppresses that release of a little hormone that uh, that turns off the awake switch. So what it does in return, it propagates wakefulness and results in more problems getting or initiating sleep than those particular patients.
0: This goes to a topic that we've all heard about called sleep hygiene and it's a very interesting notion about preparing oneself to go to sleep. I I think people don't really follow it or maybe even know what it is.
1: Well, it's a a good point you, you bring up. I believe that everybody should practice sleep hygiene but you know, Dr. Strauss, you, you know that if you don't have a problem with sleep, then kind of any, everything goes. If your sleep is restorative and and there's no issues with either getting to sleep or staying asleep sleep or not tired during the day and you get enough sleep at night, then kind of sleep hygiene, the point is mood. However, of course, for the insomnia patient, for somebody who has difficulty getting to sleep, staying to sleep, and has daytime consequences of tired and fatigue and whatnot, well, the first thing that we all should do physicians, patients, and, and you know pay attention to what you're doing. Not only bright light is one of the factors of propagating wakefulness and it causes difficulty patients getting to sleep, but you know our society's caffeinated left and right. and I'm, I'm also guilty of that as everybody else. I mean, we start our morning with some sort of activities, and one of those activities includes caffeine consumption. And then you add another social event in the afternoon, usually some sort of caffeine at lunchtime. And if you're not careful, you're going out to caffeine into the dinner time. You know, caffeine's half-life is, you know, somewhere between four to six hours. That could extend into the night. So sleep hygiene's are the typical ABCs, practical things that you can do to improve sleep. And here they are in, in a simple nutshell. Number one, our sleep works on a schedule. So schedule is the key. Keep a regular bedtime, wake-up time within the constraints of your average hours of sleep. That is, if you normally sleep six, seven hours, keep that schedule, the bedtime wake-up time, pretty consistent within the amount of time that you sleep. And that includes weekends, which is somewhat difficult to do because you're out socially and therefore you know you want to sleep in and so on and so forth. But for those patients who have insomnia, keeping a regular schedule is very important. Pre-sleep rituals, key point. It's quite interesting how, again, if you don't have insomnia, you could go from your laptop to bed and may have very little to no effect on getting to sleep. Yet, patients who have insomnia, for some reason, that pre-sleep rituals, instead of moving into a mode of relaxation, they become very vigilant, they become very alert, and they start practicing in pre-sleep bad habits. That is, bright light exposure, doing things around the house, balancing checkbooks, resolving the, uh, the Middle East crisis, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, activating themselves, and of course, you know, we consider sleep to be a, an inhibitory, turning off phenomenon. Yet they're activating all the other centers that promote wakefulness. That propagates wake, propagates insomnia complaint. And then, just simple things like the environment has a big role in some patients. If it's too hot, it takes us longer to fall asleep. The converse is true. So, and if it's there's a lot of bright light, as we already talked about, that has an effect on sleep as well.
0: Sleep disorders and psychiatric disorders are often comorbid, you see them at the same time, but how would a person know whether they should go to a sleep specialist versus a psychiatrist for a sleep problem?
1: Well, I I often see patients here that probably have both coexisting psychiatric diagnosis and the classic being vis-a-vis depression and insomnia. And of course, as as you know, Dr. Strauss said, patients would rather see a sleep specialist than a psychiatrist and admit that they're depressed. So that's probably that's but when when should they see the sleep specialist and versus should should be focused on their psych, psychiatric symptoms? And And the bottom line, there's some very basic sleep questions that you can ask or ask yourself, and those are called screening questionnaires. For example, is the reason that you have difficulty with your sleep or a sense of fatigue during the day related to snoring? Does your spouse hear any gasping episodes or unusual movements at night? Do you have symptoms of uh, restless leg syndrome? Do you have uh, other associated difficulties with, for example, asthma? Um, do you have nocturnal wheezing? Do you have gastroesophageal reflux at night? These can co- coexist along with psychiatric symptoms of either feeling fatigue with anhedonia and lack of sense of energy and so on and so forth or difficulty with insomnia at night. So taking the history or listening and advising the patient what to do initially in addition to their psychiatric history and um, listen a little bit more about their in uh, about their sleep complaint and then get a little bit more history about what does the observer see and does he have any other associated medical complaints such as angina shortness of breath etc
0: and it also brings up what i have come to respect as an underdiagnosed condition known as sleep apnea yes Uh, this apparently can cause a a sundry of, of problems
1: yeah i um sleep apnea is probably the second most common sleep complaint that comes to the office and and it comes in a variety of packages but nowadays uh, patients and physicians are very astute because of, for rightly so, because of the prevalence of sleep apnea in our society is quite significant and more importantly it's not just the prevalence but the consequences and its relationship to cardiovascular disease being hypertension, myocardial infarction, uh, congestive heart failure and strokes when you look at the list of medical illnesses and morbidity and mortality in this country, we look at, yeah, we look at cholesterol diabetes, but we also see hypertension and heart disease and stroke. And sleep apnea is a contributing to those medical cardiovascular pulmonary conditions. So we know not only is it prevalent, but we do know it's association with these conditions that cause medical illnesses such as hypertension, et cetera. So it's imperative, I think, nowadays to kind of ask patients about snoring as part of the initial entry for any evaluation whether it's uh, psychiatric or, or obviously in the sleep center which we constantly see that all the time.
0: Is there any relationship between sleep apnea and obesity? We have an epidemic of obesity now in our country.
1: Well we, we do know that uh, there are these punitive little hormones we're back to the little hormones okay. that work and, ha- and, and get our bodies in, in function and so on and so forth and leptin is one of these little neurotransmitters that, that cue our brain went to eat and not to eat. And sleep apnea, of course, has had this association with this syndrome called Syndrome X or the metabolic syndrome, which, uh, which incidentally also has an association with depression and mood disorder as well. And for some reason, the hunger center is not turned off by this leptin. And sleep apnea is associated with disorder of this hormone that tells the brain, okay, you're full and, and I've had enough. So overeating and obesity is, is, is a big factor. The way we metabolize our sugars vis-a-vis insulin is impaired as a result of sleep, apnea, and other disorders related to breathing. And, of course, these patients have what, we, what is defined as insulin resistance, that these requirements of larger doses of medications to control blood sugar becomes astronomical. So you have the triad here of sleep apnea, insulin resistance, obesity, cholesterol, and, and, and a vicious cycle.
0: And so. it brings the, the whole notion of sleep disorders right into the, the boxing ring with everything else.
1: Yes, yes, and, and, and again that the, the, the significance is the overlap of not only the prevalence uh, but the overlap with significant cardiovascular risk factors and what we're dealing with our epidemic now of obesity and, and uh, incidentally also a significant relationship w- between mood disorders and, uh, and sleep apnea as well, so.
0: We're going to unfortunately run out of time in just a minute or two, but I would like to ask you to comment on this incredible number of television ads now that exist on different sleep medications. What sort of guidelines could you give people?
1: Well, number one is, you, you, you know, the, the, the first thing is, I look at it from my perspective as the television ads uh, serve two purposes remember that they're there to sell the product. And, and of course, from my perspective, in the field of sleep medicine, it's taken us so long to become, if you will, opt in the same category as the other specialists because, you know, the field of sleep medicine is so new. So what it does, you know, the way I look at it, it's in a perspective positive outcome from my point of view is public awareness. By the patient, actually, the ads are at, pretty good, and especially the ones in relationship to restless legs, as an example, are pretty good at the definition uh, of defining the condition. So I look at it from my perspective as good public awareness. The other side of the coin, of course, they're out there for you to ask your physician about this product and the condition that you have. And I've had several dialogues with, with colleagues do presentations and talks like that that you know they're they're frustrated by which there isn't one day where you have you see your patients on follow visits and all they are they come in and say doctor i have this condition and what do you think about this product and so it kind of puts us in in a in in at arms a little bit with uh, the advertisements in this in in this country trying to promote a product as opposed to public awareness. I look at it as from an educational and public awareness point of view as opposed to trying to sell their product per se.
0: So. I think it's a very positive position because then the patient comes in and says, doctor, I'm not sleeping. I saw this and that's a perfect opening to have a serious discussion about their sleep disorders or whatever else might be troubling them. Yeah. Great point, Dr. Strauss. Absolutely. Great well, doc- point. Dr. Chidiak is a neurologist specializing in sleep disorders in Boca Raton, Florida. Dr. Chidiac, we thank you so much. This is such an incredibly interesting topic, so basic to our various survival. And I'd like to get you back and we can talk about, oh my goodness, so many other aspects of it. So you, the invitation will come, sir, and I thank you very much for joining us this evening.
1: Be my pleasure to come back and, and do any presentation you like. Thank you.